Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Grok Science Show. I'm your host, Samantha Thomas, and today I'm speaking with Dr. John Kelly about the placebo effect and how placebos are used in medicine. Well, welcome to the show, Dr. Kelly. You're the Deputy Director of the Program in Placebo Studies and the Therapeutic Encounter at Harvard Medical School. I think I'd like to get started if you could just tell us a little bit about the focus and the goals of this research program. So the the program, you know, from the title, obviously we're interested in placebo studies. I think it's a little bit of a a misnomer. When I talk to people, I almost always start by talking about the placebo effect is, is an oxymoron in a way. You know, the placebo effect is the effect of something that has no effect. So we have a problem right away. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think what we're interested in is is the therapeutic encounter. And placebo is a way to, it's an angle to get into understanding the other components of treatment that are not what are sometimes referred to as specific effects. Hmm. So if we were studying a pharmaceutical, we'd be interested in the pharmacology and, you know, how that is affecting the body. But everything else that's related to being treated in terms of the encounter with your physician or nurse, even the location of the you know, the office, what it looks like. Is it a prestigious medical center or sort of a rundown ramshackle place? You know, maybe that makes some difference. You know, how the practitioner talks to you, how empathic they seem to you, the, the relationship you have. All of these things can, can be rolled up into the what we might call the placebo effect. But we think that they're also important in active treatments as well. And really the placebo, I think, is a way to to start looking at those things and seeing how effective they might be. So there may be a placebo effect in any treatment, any kind of medication. Absolutely. For for example, and sometimes the, the terminology is very difficult here, and, and we're stuck with placebo effect. It's been around a long time, but sometimes people refer to it that as a placebo-related effect. Mm. For, for example, there are studies uh, that have been done by Fabrizio Benedetti in, in Italy in, involving what he calls an, a hidden versus open paradigm. So a patient, a real patient who's a post-operative in surgery would receive medication, say morphine, either openly, the doctor or nurse comes in and says, okay, I'm now going to infuse the, the patient can see that the infusion is about to happen. They know they're getting the morphine at that particular moment versus the computer could deliver the morphine at, uh, at an unknown. They know they're going to get the pain medication, but they don't know exactly when it's actually coming. And those studies show that when you know you're getting it, it's more effective by a lot than if you don't know you're getting the morphine. So just the knowledge that you're being treated seems to matter. And obviously that can't be the pharmacological effect of the medicine. It's the same either way. Many people have had this experience, I think, in a different way, you know, those pain pumps that you can have where the patient can deliver to themselves pain medication. They often get equal or better pain relief and yet often use less of the pain Mm -hmm. medicine. So maybe part of that is the locus of control. The person feels like I have control Mm -hmm. rather than sort Mm -hmm. of clock watching, you know, when is a nurse or doctor going to come and give me some medication? It's getting up to four hours. I'm starting to really hurt. And then the person really needs more medication as opposed to, okay, you know, they said every four hours, but this isn't bad. And then when I need it, I can press this button and get some relief and put some control back into the patient's hands. It's the same, you know, same pharmacological compound, but you can get just as good relief with less of the medication. So this was this isn't a placebo effect exactly. It's a, I guess you'd call that a placebo-related effect. So I think mm-hmm. you know, your point is exactly right that we think that the effects that make the placebo effect work are probably similar to the effects that make the genuine medications work. 
I'd like to back up a little and talk broadly about when placebos are used in medicine today. What, what context do doctors use placebos for? Sure. So some other terminology. It's pretty rare that doctors would use placebos that are what are called pure placebos because people assume that the only reason that they work is that the patient thinks it might be a real drug. And so you can do that in a randomized controlled trial with informed consent, but in ordinary clinical practice, since it's not a randomized trial, the patient would have to be deceived, and that goes against the sort of, um, you know, the, the ethical position that the AMA might take about this. Pure placebos are, kind of, are infrequently used, but we have this term which we call impure placebo. So this would be giving a patient something that you don't really think would be, probably can't hurt, you wouldn't do that, hopefully, but maybe wouldn't help. You'd prescribe it anyway. So, for example, you know, the overprescription of antibiotics mm. uh, is an example of a, perhaps a dirty placebo where the doctor feels sort of pressured in some way or they're, they're in a big hurry. They think, well, maybe they have a bacterial infection, but maybe not. And they just go ahead and, and give the patient what they think the patient wants, a prescription for Antibiotic, that's a good example, of course, of a, a potentially a negative effect because of the overuse, you know, can cause, you know, resistant strains of bacteria to develop. But other things might be sort of, you know, prescribing vitamins or something that you don't think, you know, maybe is going to make, it won't hurt the person, but perhaps you're not really very confident it's going to help very much. And that could either be prescribed with confidence, saying, I think this might really help you, which would be a bit of a, maybe a white lie, or it could be prescribed, well, you know, we don't know whether these will help or not, but maybe you might want to try them. The same thing might happen with a doctor might go along with a particular complementary or alternative medicine. They say, go ahead and try it, but maybe say it either more enthusiastically from some clinical experience that he or she might feel like it is effective or could say, well, we don't really know how these things work. Some patients seem to have had some benefits, so it doesn't seem to be too much in the way of downside. So, you know, I'd be okay with you trying that. I mean, I think it's pretty common, this giving patients something, because I think people kind of want something. The question is, is this really actually, you know, a lot of times it could be a placebo. Another example would be giving a dose that's very low of a medication. It's unlikely to actually have any effect, you know. There's even an expression, I think it's called it's something like, uh, start low, go slow. And, and there's, there's some ideas of doing that, maybe to avoid negative side effects. But it's possible some people might be on a dose of medicine that's so low that it really probably can't have much direct pharmacological effect, and yet, you know, maybe the person stays on that for years. You know, that they think, you know, it's basically a placebo potentially, even though it's not a pure placebo. Um, you mentioned that uh, at least from the AMA's perspective, prescription of pure placebos is considered unethical. Is there? Are there thoughts or conversations about whether these impure placebos, um, vitamins, antibiotics, things that, you know, people kind of know don't actually have pharmacological activity, is there conversation about whether the same ethics would apply to that? Well, I think that the key difference here is the issue of deception. I think that's the problem, I think. You know, if you were to give placebos openly and say this is a placebo, the AMA, I think, explicitly allows that, in fact. That, that is okay if you're, if you're telling people that. Um, and let's bookmark that for a moment. I think we can, I'd like to come back to that. But, but in terms of, I, I agree with you, I guess. I mean, it's, it's ironic that giving people a placebo is considered you know, unethical, even though it doesn't have anything that could hurt you, whereas giving someone an antibiotic who you think hmm, probably doesn't need it is not unethical because you're being straight up about it. 
but um, it is kind of ironic that the person that's more it seems more dangerous mm -hmm. but I think it does come down to sort of patient agency that they should have a choice about the matter and know what they're getting and if I might come back to the idea of open placebo that is something that we're investigating where we give people placebos and tell them that it's placebo and we've actually done several trials and had some promising results with this strategy it seems a little crazy you know if you say to somebody here's some medicine here's here's a pill that doesn't have anything in it good luck <laughs> you wouldn't expect it should do anything but in fact what we do is that we don't do that we don't say just here's a pill good luck we give them a rationale mm -hmm. for effectiveness why might this actually work um, and we've done a few different things, but usually it includes something about telling them about placebo's effectiveness in randomized controlled trials. They often do very well compared to real medications. So there's some belief that this could work. We usually talk about conditioning, the idea of classical conditioning, so like Pavlov's dog. People have used medications, say pills, many times. They usually often get relief. So after a while, they sort of respond just to the sort of ritual of taking the pill, sort of like Pavlov's dog responds to the sound of the bell, even without any food hmm. or any smell there, still salivates. And we talk about expectations, that it's helpful to have positive expectations. Uh, but we usually say, it's, you know, it's okay that if you have doubts. Of course, it sort of makes sense. There's nothing in this pill. Of course, people are going to have some doubts. You know, we, we don't want to oversell it, I guess, basically. We, we, we tell people it's okay to have some amount of doubt. And the fact that it might work automatically through this sort of classical conditioning mechanism means you could have doubts, and, it, and, and despite that, it could work. So we give them, you know, a, a set of rationales for why this might work. And we've probably most prominently done this in irritable bowel syndrome and shown a pretty good results where people who got the open placebo compared to a no treatment control, the people with the placebo did pretty well, so significantly better. Uh, we've also done it in depression, but although only a pilot study, too small to really, some promising results, but really too, to really uh, say yet whether that might work in depression. And in migraine headaches, we did an experiment where open placebo seemed to be effective compared to no treatment control. It's also been done not by us, but another group in, in uh, attention deficit uh, hyperactivity disorder, ADHD. I have two questions uh, um, on what you just said. First, I'd just like to ask you if you could maybe talk about the kinds of disorders or diseases that could be treated with placebos. Is it is it mainly those that are thought to have a psychological component, or um... yes? Okay. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that the most common targets that we have started with are things that people think about as psychological in origin, like depression, and more physical disorders that might have a psychological component, like gut disorders, that where clearly our stress levels can in interact with that. Because obviously the mechanism, at least the initial mechanism of placebos, is not physiological or pharmacological. It's, you know, it's a psychological mechanism. But it's there's been studies, you know, where like there was a recent study just published a few months ago with a more objective outcome, which was people who are cyclists and they were giving them, they were told, they were they were lied to, they weren't real, they weren't patients, so it was a different kind of an experiment. But they were getting injections of what they were told was EPO, you know, sort of a performance enhancing drug. In fact, it was a placebo, and they improved their cycling. These were sort of competitive, not not elite, but but competitive sort of club level cyclists in the UK. And they showed statistically significant improvement in their race times. These were real races with consequences too. I believe there were prizes for winning, you know, cash money for for winning and so they were really trying very hard. 
I think the improvement doesn't sound like a lot. It's about a 1% improvement, but I think in cycling and a lot of sports like that, this little edge of 1% can really make a difference because often it's very close. So, so I guess what I'd say is that there's a sort of harder outcome, not just I feel better, but actually being able to cycle faster. But of course, it's based on psychology, I think, uh, you know, that it translates into some sort of physiological improvement. But it's, I think, the mechanism, the initial mechanism is psychological. So I think, you know, obviously we're not very hopeful that we could prescribe, well, back to antibiotics. We, we, I don't think that it's going to make that big a difference to tell somebody this, you know, to, to, if they were deceived and thought this was a, a real an antibiotic and they really had a bacterial infection, probably it's not going to help very much. Mm-hmm. You know, um, if you have a broken bone, I don't think placebo, you know, morphine is going to be enough. You know, it's not quite there. So it has, there has to be some kind of psychology that, has to, that can be impacted, I think. Yeah, I just asked because I remember a couple of years ago that there was a, a lot of news about this study in Parkinson's, that Parkinson's patients respond to placebo, which yes. does not, I, I believe, is not thought to be a disorder with a large psychological component. Um, maybe it is. <laughs> it suggests to me that there is, I mean, clearly it's not psychological in its essence. That's that's absolute, I think. But, you know, there, there are ways in which I think psychology can can cause changes in our brains, obviously. And so, so for example, if you talk, go back to placebo morphine, if you give people naloxone, which is an opioid blocker, mm-hmm. And you're treating them, and they're being—they're led to believe that they're getting an opioid, morphine, say, but it's in fact a placebo. You, so you can get a robust placebo effect by conditioning them, giving them some real morphine, and then over time, eventually giving them trials without real morphine. It's just a placebo. Then you can get a placebo effect. But if you give people naloxone, you can block that placebo effect, suggesting that the effect is not just psychological. That the psychology of thinking you're getting morphine probably results in, in endogenous opioids inside your brain being released, causing pain relief. So there's a real mm. physiological change in the brain, which when you think about it, kind of makes sense. If you, it's like people get very excited if you see, this is going off topic a little bit, but if, you know, if you see the studies that have been done of people who were depressed at one point, they have psychotherapy, they're better, and using neuroimaging, you can see changes in the brain. And to me, I mean, that's very exciting. It gets a lot of press in a way, but it kind of makes sense. I mean, it sort of seems like obvious. People are depressed to start off with. Later, they're not depressed. Where else would it be but in their brain? Their brains yeah. probably are functionally different when they're not feeling depressed. You know, I think it starts as, as psychology, I guess, or, you know, belief that the person has an expectation, but it seems like that can actually have effects on brain functioning, which can then have effects, say, for example, on Parkinson's. So you mentioned one mechanism that placebos might work through is the opioid system. Um, yes. Are there other kind of biological mechanisms that have been researched? Sure. I mean, you, you just mentioned Parkinson's is related to dopamine. And so it's, it, it's, it's clear that in Parkinson's disease, we have the same kind of situation where it's not endogenous opiates, but instead uh, endogenous dopamine that's being manipulated somehow by the psychological effect of thinking you're getting a real dose of L-DOPA, but in fact, it's a placebo. Mm-hmm. In pain, aside from the opiate system, the, uh, the cannabinoid system is also implicated. So if people are conditioned to uh, like a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, they appear to have a different mechanism than, which is the cannabinoid receptors, not the, the opioid receptors in the brain. 
So it seems like there's multiple different systems that can be affected by placebos that are not just, quote, just in your head, not just psychology, but physiology. So I'd like to go back and talk about the second half of the name of your program, the therapeutic encounter. What is it? Yeah. Um, do you have a sense of what it is about the clinical encounter that is therapeutic for people? Yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting area. We've done some studies about it. It's so hard to unpack what it is that the good bedside manner might be. By, by unpack, I mean take apart. What are the pieces of this? But it does seem like that does make a difference. So an example, got back to irritable bowel syndrome, we've done a number of studies there, and we, we've shown that we manipulated. We asked the acupuncturists to, in one condition, act uh, it's business-like, kind of neutral, not cold really or negative, but just business-like. In fact, they would literally say something like, well, this is a scientific study. We were trying to understand how acupuncture specifically works, you know, outside of the, the therapeutic relationship, so we're not going to have a lot of direct contact. And the other condition, they were warm and empathic. You know, they touched the patient, say, on the shoulder. They asked the patient about the meaning of their symptoms and, you know, kind of explored that with the patient. They, they did a number of different things. We put a lot of different components in there uh, and showed that when they were doing placebo acupuncture that the limited condition is less good substantially than the what we call augmented, the enhanced, more empathic, warm, friendly kind of condition. A really great study that I love, it's a little simple study that involved post-operative a surgeon coming into a room to see his patients, it was a single surgeon, and he was randomized to either sit down or stand up. That's it. And everything else he did, we did the same. And after the consultation with the patients, they felt like he spent more time with him when he sat down. But in fact, he spent less time on average <laughs> when he was sitting down and standing up, which is beautiful. You know, that somehow sitting communicates to the person that we have time for you. We're going to talk as much as you need, you know, for somewhat versus standing really implicates, you know, I got to go kind of thing. I'm, I'm very interested in these little small things you might do that might make a difference. So you go to your doctor and now everybody's got computers and they're typing in and filling out all the forms that they have to do. And some, something like manipulating where the desk is, you know, is, is the computer sort of that's situated so it's dividing. It's like a wall between you mm -hmm. and the patient. Or is it sort of to the side so that both you and the patient can see what you're doing? I think that little shift might make a difference in terms of how the patient feels. Anyway, so I think this is an interesting area. That's the therapeutic encounter, how to understand that. And by unpack it, unpack it I, I guess I mean what that example I gave of, of trying to manipulate one or a few of the components and seeing how much of a difference that might make. For example, even looking the patient in the eye, you know, like actually no noticing what eye color they might have, mm. um, you know, remembering one thing about each patient, about, you know, I, I just saw my own personal, one of my doctors today, and he mentioned, oh, uh, your daughter I see is at this college, and, he, you know, he had some sort of connection to it. And I'm not even sure how, I must have mentioned it some other time, but it made, it felt very, you know, it felt good that he mm -hmm. seemed to care about me as a person, not just a diagnosis. So something like that, you know, these little small things that some, someone might do that potentially could make a difference. That, that's the small thing. Now, larger things would be to train people, you know, as a psychologist myself, I'm, you know, I, I think that some of the placebo effect is sort of like psychotherapy, sort of like mm -hmm. what was referred to as the common factors of psychotherapy. 
how to ask questions, open-ended questions versus closed-ended questions, and how to reflect back what the person said, make sure you understand you know, what they're, where they're coming from, expressing empathy, these kinds of things, I think, are probably very important. And doctors with good bedside manners probably just do that on automatically, unconsciously. Some people are just good at that, and some maybe not as good. Right. <laughs> Everyone's probably experienced doctors that are less, or, or nurses or whoever, less warm, empathic. So I, I feel like a lot of people might hear about the placebo effect and think, well, if the body is able to heal itself, at least to some degree, why doesn't it just do that in the first place? Well, that could be, you know. I mean, I guess, you know, we might be able to heal ourselves to some degree. I mean, it probably does happen. But I think there are situations where the person is terrified and nervous and confused. You know, all those things cannot be good. And, mm -hmm. and going to some kind of authority figure who can tell you, okay, here's what the problem is and here's how we're going to fix it. And I mean, all that matters. But on the other hand, I think, you know, to some degree, things like teaching people how to meditate and, you know, stress reduction, these kinds of things are, are a way of trying to make them their own therapist, so to speak, or their own good bedside manner, you know, trying to activate these sort of self-healing things. I think the other thing to be clear about too, though, importantly, is that we're not saying that it's all placebo. You know, there's lots of obviously treatments that are extremely important that you really need to have. Mm -hmm. You know, if you have a really serious, you know, infection, you really probably need those antibiotics. All we're saying is that in many situations, the effects of those things can be enhanced by a good relationship with the patient. I mean, even something like your diagnosis could be improved if if you have a good bedside manner, a good way of interacting with the patient, they feel more comfortable with you. They're more likely to tell you about things that maybe are embarrassing to them or, you know, they're, they're just more likely to give you better information probably if you have a closer relationship to them. They feel hmm. like you really care, you really know who they are, that you're really interested in hearing the story that they have to tell about whatever it is. So aside from them just feeling comforted by your empathy, they actually, the doctor may actually get better information about the disorder and be able to diagnose it better. It's kind of like the opposite of house, you know, the house doctor. <laughs> <laughs> he gets, he seems to get the diagnosis right somehow or other, but through some other means. But, but oftentimes, you know, maybe a little empathy would help for him. You make placebo sound much better than I think their their reputation might have people imagine them to be? Well, I, I think because the idea that e either that they're sort of a nothing and, and the, a person's fooling themselves, you know, it's all in my head, i.e. there's no real benefit here, that's not a very good way of viewing it. Or it, someone's fooling me, someone's tricking me, it's mm -hmm. a charlatan. Yeah. Both of those are really negative, pernicious views of placebo. And, you know, placebo is this incredibly malleable term. So, you know, it, it does lend itself to those. You People, I mean, charlatans really are using the placebo effect, right? So that's part of why it works, why, why some of those things might work for people. I guess we're trying to say whatever this is that, that makes the placebo effect work, if we can kind of bring it into the light and use it in a, in a thoughtful, positive way for people, either helping them to to activate whatever self-healing mechanisms they can on their own or through the thoughtful treatment encounter, trying to help activate these self-healing mechanisms through the person of the, the treater and the, the environment, the context within which the treatment takes place, I think is 
is just it's just a reframing of it essentially, or it's using it in a benign way. Because obviously, you could use those things in a in a in a, in a negative way too. Has there ever been any legal action taken against a physician for prescribing a placebo? It's a good question. I don't know off the top of my head. I'm thinking, I don't think so. I mean, I think that that's why, though, I think people will be very reluctant to prescribe placebo. Hmm. Disappear placebo, a sugar pill or something like that. Yeah, even yeah. though, I mean, it used to be the case that that was done back in a more paternalistic age. Mm-hmm. But now I think you could be at risk, uh, especially like, I, I, like I, I can, here's a nightmare scenario I can imagine. You first misdiagnose the situation, what can happen to anybody, so you've made a mistake. You give someone a placebo because you think their condition is benign, but it's mm-hmm. actually something quite serious. And then they die or have some serious bad outcome. That's not going to look good. Uh, I think it's going to make things worse for you in a malpractice suit as opposed to not giving anything, just mm, simply saying, yeah. well, you know, because you not only misdiagnose them, but even, one might argue, okay, you've, they may not have gone for a second opinion. This has been really interesting. I, I want to ask you if there's any kind of last thing you want to say before we wrap up, especially because I know you're particularly interested in this sort of idea in psychiatrics. So is there is there anything you'd like to say about that? Yeah, I guess the thing I would say is, so on the one hand, as I said earlier, oftentimes there are lots of really valuable medical treatments that, of course, we need to spend a lot of time on researching how they work, teaching doctors how to uh, use those treatments. You know, the technical aspect of medicine, incredibly important. But I think that because that consumes so much attention that the sort of softer side, you might call it, the art of medicine gets a little bit lost. And I think that's unfortunate. And I think there may be conditions, and psychiatry might be one of them, where our medications and other treatments, somatic treatments, have limited effectiveness. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they can help people, but maybe not as much as we think. And sometimes listening to people and, you know, be, being empathic, I mean, you know, psychiatrists are trained to do this, but that part of it is very important. And maybe we don't attend to that enough. And I think most people would agree with that right off the bat, right? That I mean, in psychiatry, that's kind of obvious. But in other conditions, the fact that pain really does Effect is, is affected by how the person, not just what you give them, but how you give it to them. I think that has repercussions throughout medicine, and I think we part of the system. I'm, I'm not blaming doctors. The system is kind of currently set up that they have less and less time to talk to their patients. I think most doctors would like to spend more time with their patients, yeah. but no one is valuating it enough to say, let's start doing that. Let's start teaching that. Let's let's find more time, or even whatever time we do have, let's try to use that as efficiently as possible to foster a good relationship. I just think that part of medicine is withering away a little bit or has been withering away. Uh, I mean, there was a time when there was, medicine had very few treatments. It was mostly placebos, really. And and the doctor's good bedside manner was very important, house calls and this kind of thing. Now we've gone in totally the opposite direction where we have lots of very good treatments, but not all of them are great. And whether they're great or not, I think the personal relationship, the therapeutic relationship that you have with patients is incredibly important and needs to be researched more and supported more. One thing I can say is that maybe in the future, as this becomes clearer, you know, insurance companies might start wanting to pay for this if they feel like health outcomes are better. If that can be shown, that health outcomes are better if you do, you know, whatever the empathic procedure would be, that maybe they would start to pay for it, which, you know, it seems like that's one of the only ways that 
things might change is economic forces pushing the system in the direction it would be better for patients and really for doctors too, I think. They would be happier. Well, thank you, Dr. Kelly. This has been fascinating. You gave us a lot to think about. Thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. It's a great pleasure talking with you. Once again, that was Dr. John Kelly, and you've been listening to The Grok Science Show. Thanks again for tuning in. Please join us next week for more from the world of science and technology. For Charles Lee Franklin and the rest of the Grok's crew, I'm Samantha Thomas. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.